We come to the conclusion of the letter of Philippians. So some of you may be sad because we've had lots of verses telling us to rejoice. It's been a joyful letter. Others may be saying, good, I'm glad to move on to something else. So we come to the last verses of Philippians, and this part of the letter really is a thank you card written by Paul to the Philippians. Do you still write thank you cards? I know when I was growing up, uh, my mom and grandma, especially because they taught me my manners, uh, told me when you receive a gift, you always write and mail a thank you card. Well, now, of course, we have electronic communication. So is it appropriate to text someone or to email someone? What if you get the thank you card and you write it and then you hand it to someone? Is that good enough? You know, and then don't you feel this way sometimes when someone gives you a thank you card? You, you feel so joyful that you want to give them a thank you for the thank you card? And so you can go back and forth. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. Weren't there a couple of chipmunks or something that did that in some uh, cartoon way back when? I don't know. But uh, as the tradition and the, the way of doing thank yous nowadays is changing, it has always been appropriate when you receive a gift to say to someone, thank you. So that's simply what Paul's doing. He's telling the Philippians, thank you. Remember, they sent him Epaphroditus, and with Epaphroditus was a financial gift. Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with this letter. He has told them to watch out for false teachers. He's told them to be united. He's told them what attitude to have, that of Jesus Christ. So he has written a lot to encourage them, but also he wants to say thank you. What is great for us is he tells them, thank you, we learn how to give and how to receive. So first, let's learn some lessons about giving. The first one we learn is our motivation to give. Don't you, haven't you experienced this? Someone, either a preacher, or it doesn't have to be in a religious setting, uh, Someone calls you wanting you to donate to a school or to a cause or uh, you get a pitch and it's guilt-inducing, it's shaming-inducing, it's you, know, you need to give and if you don't give then you're a terrible person or you know whatever. You get this speech and you're motivated to give out of guilt or out of shame or you're motivated to give because someone else is giving and you don't want them to look better than you. So, so you give. There's lots of motivations for giving that are wrong and ungodly. There's only one motivation for giving if we are giving in a godly way. And Paul shares it here in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You are in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. Here Paul uses two words, care and concern. In other words, the motivation for giving is love. When you love someone, you're concerned about their well-being, as the Philippians were. They were concerned about Paul because he was in prison. Because they loved Paul, they wanted to care for him. He needed 
food. He needed clothing. He needed assistance because the Roman government wasn't going to provide it. The Philippians loved him. Therefore, they cared for him, were concerned for him, and they gave. That's why God gave his son Jesus out of love. That is the reason that the Lord Jesus died for us was out of love. When we give to God's kingdom, to an individual, to a ministry, to a mission, to a church, we give out of love. Love for God and or love for someone in need. That is the true motivation for giving. So when you are hearing a different motivation, I would encourage you to ignore it. If you are giving out of guilt or giving out of being ashamed or giving out of jealousy, I'd say don't give. Now, it is true that God has commanded us to give. And so it is true that you could give, I am giving simply because God has told me to, out of obedience. And that would be an appropriate motivation, although I would also hope that with that would be love. Because you know you can obey begrudgingly. And you can obey with a heart attitude of wishing you didn't have to. I mean, you did that as kids obeying your parents. You didn't always want to when you did it. And we can obey God without wanting to. So I would say it's better to obey not wanting to than disobeying God. So in addition to love is the desire to be obedient. But I would pray that the two come together. And it's out of love and obedience to God that you give. When we talk about giving, I want you to think about these three things in order to give. Uh, there has to be a need. Now, I know you can bless people by just giving them things when they don't need something. That's a way to give. But often when we think about terms of giving in the New Testament, there is a need. And so we give when there's a need... But also we have to know about the need and we have to have the opportunity to do so. If you don't know someone's in need, how can you give? And you may not have the resources to help. You can know about someone in need. You could go and help them. But if you don't have the resources yourself, you can't do it. But when those three things come together, you know about a need and you have the opportunity and you have the resources, then give. And give as God calls you to, as God leads you to. Uh, that's what the Philippians did because they didn't care about what other people were doing. They gave as God called them to give. Listen to what Paul says. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. The Philippians could have said, well, no one else is helping out, Paul. Why do we need to? But they had the resources too, and they had an opportunity, and Paul was in need, and out of care and concern, they gave. So give as God calls you. Don't look at other people, what they're giving. Don't try to outgive them because you want to be better than them. Don't be concerned someone else is outgiving you. You just listen to God, and as God calls you to give, to a church, to his kingdom, to a person, be obedient and out of love 
give. That's what the Philippians did. God rewards those who give. Paul says this, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. It's just like Paul to be thinking of other people before himself. See, Paul's saying, I didn't seek out this gift you gave me. Paul wasn't writing letters to all the churches and saying, hey, help me out. Not that there's something, anything wrong with that. He just wasn't doing that. He wasn't saying, I need help, give me money, I need a donation, I need this, I need that. He didn't tell that to anybody. So he wasn't seeking the gift that they gave. When he got the gift, he was rejoicing. But not rejoicing that now he had something he didn't have. He was rejoicing because now the Philippians were going to be rewarded for their gift. You see the word he uses, the profit that is increasing to your account. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we can live life gathering stuff. When we do that, we die and all the stuff stays behind. We lose it all. Or we can spend our life serving God, doing good works, advancing God's kingdom, giving to help people out. We can live our life doing those things. When we do those things, God sees and he rewards with a gift excuse me, with a reward that is eternal. So which would you rather have? Stuff that's going to be gone in a few years or a reward that is eternal? Sometimes we get uneasy with the idea that we're giving or we're serving God for a reward. It seems like the wrong motive. But the reality is God does reward and it is a motivation he gives us. I would hope we would pair that with the other motivation, love. So love, obedience, receiving a reward. All of those are good motives for doing good works and for giving in particular. In fact, I doubt that any of us ever do anything with 100% pure motives. Because we're humans and we're sinful. Maybe we get to 99.9. But I I think even with the most love and the best intentions and the most focused on the kingdom of God, there probably still is some selfishness in it that we receive something in return and we like that or we like what we're doing and that's enjoyable for us. So I'm not so concerned myself that I have 100% pure, although that's what I strive for. But what I do try to do is have that mindset of love, obedience, and remember that God rewards those who give and do good works. And that's why Paul was excited. The Philippians were going to receive reward in heaven. The stuff he got, he didn't have to use, it'd be gone. But their account was filling up. And God is also pleased when we give. 
Paul says this, I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, worshipers gave sacrifices to God. Of course, the most important one they gave was a sin offering, an animal that was killed, offered on an altar, burnt on an altar, so that their sins would be covered. Praise God, Jesus Christ is the the sacrifice and the last sacrifice for sin. As Christian worshipers, we don't have to offer a sacrifice to cover our sin. Yet, even in the Old Testament, worshipers offered other types of sacrifices. When they were grateful to God, they would offer a sacrifice. When they wanted to make a commitment to God, they would offer a sacrifice. So they, when they wanted to have, uh, signify their fellowship and close relationship to God, they would offer a sacrifice. So even Old Testament worshipers offered different sacrifices other than just a sin offering. So for us as New Testament worshipers, Paul says one of the offerings, one of the sacrifices we offer to God is our giving. And when I think about sacrifices, this is maybe weird. I've never heard of anybody else thinking about it this way except for me. So if you have me, then we're weird together, I guess. But uh, I love the smell in the summer of my neighbor's grilling. And whether they're, I can smell the steak or the hamburgers, the chicken, the barbecue. I'm not quite close enough to you, Denny, to smell your house. Big D's. I wish I were. But you know the smell, I, and to be honest, maybe a little bit gross, it's burning animals is what you're smelling, okay? So I kind of have that picture. You know, when the worshipers in the Old Testament worship God with a pure heart, the sacrifice was given, it's called the sweet aroma. So I imagine God smelling the burning animals, and it smells to him like my neighborhood in the summer when my neighbors are grilling. That wonderful smell. Of course, God told the Old Testament worshipers, I don't want your sacrifices if your heart's not right. That's first. But if your heart is right and you offer an offering to God, God is pleased with it. It's like the sweet aroma. And you might be wondering, what are other sacrifices in the New Testament that we are to offer Ourselves, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1, to give our lives as a living sacrifice, because we don't kill ourselves, obviously, right? So we give our entire life to God as a living sacrifice. Our praise is called a sacrifice, an act of worship. Also, good works, which giving is a particular, specific good work. And the people that we lead to Jesus Christ in faith. That's an act of worship, a sacrifice given to our Lord. So I encourage us as New Testament worshipers, again, we're not offering animals, but we still are worshipers, still offering sacrifices of praise, of good works, ourselves, and those we lead to the Lord. The final thing we learn about giving is this. God will supply our needs when we give. 
Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I said at the beginning of Philippians, there were a lot of verses in this letter. They get put in memes, on refrigerators, on bumper stickers, on t-shirts. This is one of them. Haven't you heard this verse many times? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well, Let's look at this verse a little bit more. The one thing I love about it is that God gives according to his riches, not out of his riches. What's the difference? If you have a billion dollars and you give someone a dollar, you have given out of your riches, haven't you? It's a part that you've taken out and you've given it. But if you give according to your riches and you're a billionaire... You would have to give at least millions of dollars to someone for it to be in line with your vast wealth. So God doesn't bless us out of just a little bit out of what he has. He blesses us and meets our needs according to his riches. An abundance. Overflowing. That's how I think of it when I think of being receiving out, excuse me, according to his riches. Now think about this, there's a promise that God will meet needs. Again, the verse, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And I'm sure when people read that verse, they have case studies of where they feel that's not true. They can point to people who are in severe poverty. Christians, suffering, hurting. And extreme poverty. Where's God's promise then? I don't know the full answer to how God always keeps his promises. But I want us to think about these three things. One, our greatest needs may not be material things. See, I think when we read that verse, we always equate needs with money. And so we read it, God will supply all the money you need. Well, that's not what the verse says. It says that God will meet our needs. Maybe our greatest need isn't money. Maybe it's salvation. Maybe it's peace. Maybe it's joy. Maybe it's mercy. Maybe it's grace. Those don't equal money at all. And so I think we just need to be careful when we read the verse that we don't misinterpret it and just automatically put money in there. That God will supply our money. It says God will meet our needs. And think about this. The verse is given, this promise is given to generous Christians. It's not given generally to people, unbelievers, Christians alike. It's specifically to Christians. And not just any Christians, generous Christians. It's not given to stingy Christians. It's not given to Scrooge Christians. Generous Christians. And that does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Those who are generous and those who give, God will take care of. And also, notice where our needs are met. They're met in Jesus. So, 
It's important for us to understand for this promise to be true, we have to be united with the Lord. Yes, of course, in salvation, but I think more than that. Because the needs that are being supplied are coming from a source, and that source is Jesus. So if you're not close to the source, you're not going to get the blessing, and you're not going to receive the gift. Because that's true, you could be a believer going to heaven... But you know that you can because of sin or because of laziness. You can be far from God by our choice. And when we're far from God, how are we close enough to the source to receive the source of blessing? So it's important for many reasons that our life daily is lived close to God and communion with Him. Jesus talks about us as branches and he the vine and how we are to be connected. And there's other metaphors and other verses that remind us of this truth that we must be close to God. So before we come up with the cases and before we start accusing God of not keeping his promises and before we come up with the exceptions, let's think about these things. And I would dare to say this, if we could see everything from God's perspective, and see the hearts, and see the past, the present, the future, see it all, I think God keeps his promise 100% of the time. If we think we found exceptions, it's probably we don't have the full picture. But what a wonderful promise. I could say probably another motivation to give. That when we give, God graciously takes care of us. Now, let's talk about receiving. Paul was a joyful, cheerful, grateful receiver. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. Do you know people who when they receive a gift will turn it down? I used to think that might be a good thing because maybe they're saying, you know, I'm going to turn it down because I'm going to rely on what I have. And maybe they didn't need it, so they say, thank you, but I, I, I'm just not going to accept it. But as I thought more about it over the years, I, I think it's not a good thing for this reason. When someone feels called by God to give, and they give to you, and you say no, in a sense, you've robbed them of the opportunity of blessing you. You've robbed them from the opportunity of, of having their investment in heaven increase. And even though it may come off as, I will live on, I will do with what God has given me, it can also come across as arrogant. I don't need what you want to give me. So as much as we hear the verse... That Paul says elsewhere, elsewhere, God loves a cheerful giver. We should also be cheerful receivers of gifts. When we receive a gift, whatever kind, it doesn't have to be money. When someone blesses us, thank you. Receive it with joy, cheerfulness, gratitude. Let's be good receivers of gift as well as cheerful givers. Now remember, the Philippians had been giving to Paul over and over. He wants to remind them of this because he's so thankful. 
Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Thessalonica was the first town Paul went to after he left Philippi. So immediately after he left, the Philippians were helping him out. And not just once, but twice, three, I mean several times. So their giving out of care and concern for Paul had been happening many times over many years. And Paul did not want to take that for granted, did not want the Philippians to think he had forgotten that. And he says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done so many times over so many years. That's how you receive a gift. Maybe the most important lesson we learn as Paul thanks the Philippians for their gift is how to be content. But even before I read the verses, I want us to put our lives in perspective. I know this to be true. I know none of us are wealthy enough just to go out and buy something today that we want. There are some people that rich. You want a yacht today? Sure. Go get it. I know none of you can do that. So none of us are that wealthy. I also know that probably all of us have made sacrifices. We have not gotten something so our children could have something. I know that we have all probably had to juggle bills. Now, which bill are we going to pay this month? This bill or that bill? I'm sure there are times that all of us have had to tighten the belt on our budget and go without. So I know also there's probably times that we have missed meals. We've gone hungry because of lack of money. So we've had that kind of relationship. And I don't want to downplay the fact that in America there are people who are extremely poor. And life for them is very difficult because of that. I don't want to downplay it. I don't want to brush over it. But I do want to put it in perspective, especially for Americans compared to a lot of the world. Uh, From these pictures, can you imagine having your home basically being cardboard next to a railroad track? Or even worse, you have no home, but you have a child. You have your child, a backpack, and you roam the streets hoping for mercy from a stranger to make it through a day. Can you imagine that your life begins every day by going to the city's garbage dump? There you hope to find a couple of things. Maybe you find some food that you can eat that's been thrown in the garbage. Maybe you can find something worth selling that you can take and go and sell for some money. Oh, and by the way, your kids are with you because there's no school for them to go to. There's no one to take care of them. So your kids along beside you are rummaging through other people's garbage, hoping to make it through a day. I know that we do go hungry, no doubt about that. And I know we say at times, I'm starving, an obvious exaggeration. But I would doubt any of us here have 
been to the point where you're days away from dying of starvation. And people today still die of malnutrition. So I want to put our American lives in perspective to the life of many around the world and many Christians that are our brothers and sisters around the world. Before we look at Paul's words about contentment. Because you know what this is, uh, what is natural for every human being is to want more. That's what every human being wants naturally. No matter what you have, no matter who you are, you are tempted to want more and to be dissatisfied with what you have. Now, haven't you found that to be true? I'm not saying that's true every morning when you wake up, okay? But I'm saying that that is a constant temptation, and I know you have felt that maybe many times in your life. You look at what you have, and you say, oh, it's old, it's worn out, it's no good. I'm not talking about your spouse, okay? I'm talking about your car or something, all right? Or you, or you look at what others have, and you say, I want that. Or again, you just look at what you have or your bank account and say, I want more. I need more. That's what comes naturally. But Paul says he learned something different. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. When you are wealthy, there's a temptation to ignore God. Because you have everything you need. You don't need God for anything. Also, when you're wealthy, there's a temptation to be very arrogant because you believe everything you have, you got by your hard work. On the other hand, if you're poor, there's temptation too. Uh, there's temptation to look at other people and be jealous and envious. That's a sin, just like arrogance is a sin. Also, when you're poor, you're tempted to steal, connive, scheme, cheat, to get what you need. And that's a sin too. So you see how whether you're wealthy or poor or in between, there's temptations, and especially at the extremes of wealth and poverty. And so many would pray something similar to what is prayed in Proverbs where it says, give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. So I think we can see the value of kind of being in the middle. But it's interesting to me that most people, regardless of how much money they have, think they're in the middle. Even when they're extremely wealthy, like most Americans are compared to the rest of the world. But what Paul is talking about is not being middle class. He's talking about being content. Whether he had a lot or whether he had a little. And I read it quickly, but he told us the secret. And he didn't keep the secret to himself. He was ready to share it with the Philippians and with us. 
The key to contentment is to know that our strength comes from God, not our stuff. And here's the verse that he uses that, again, is one that I see in memes, on refrigerators. I really see this, I don't know for what reason, a lot in sports. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm able to score a touchdown with God who strengthens me. I'm able to run past defenders with God who strengthens me. <laughs> I'm able to throw the softball faster than anybody else with God who strengthens me. I don't know why particular athletes like this verse, but the idea of strength and being able to do anything is very appealing, isn't it? But I, sometimes I think we strip this verse out of its context. Paul says this is the secret to contentment, not the secret to winning a football game. You see, Paul had everything when he had Jesus. Because in Christ, we have what we need most, salvation. And in Christ, we have all the power of the universe. He created it with his words. He defeated death. That's the power we have in Jesus Christ. With that power, with that person... With his presence, we have all that we need. So whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, if we have Christ, we can be content. And that's the secret. It sounds maybe too simple. Maybe it sounds too profound. But that's really it. Uh, the closer we are to God, as I shared earlier, the importance of being close to God... The closer we are, the more that we receive our strength and receive our needs met through Christ. And then the stuff we have in our life isn't what makes us feel secure or makes us feel happy. We are content. And when we're not content, that's what's happening. We feel like we need more because we don't have enough to be secure or we don't have enough to be happy. Or we don't have enough to feel satisfied. And so we go for more and more and more. But when we rest in Christ, we're satisfied. We don't need more. We don't need to strive to gather more. We have peace and contentment with Him. Father, we are thankful people this morning. Thankful for all the blessings that you give. And my prayer for myself, my brothers and sisters is this that we would be great givers, giving generously out of love, and that we would be great receivers of gifts, filled with joy and cheerfulness and gratitude toward those who give. Most of all, Lord, I pray that we would be close to you so that our needs are met in you and contentment is found in you. Lord, I pray that we would leave here today close to you and contented. If any are not, I pray right now in this time of response, Lord, that they would be. And they're talking to you or in their obedience to you or they're resting in you right now. I pray that's how all of us would leave here today. And I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.